let me invite you this morning. <clears throat> I don't believe the words are going to be on the screen for you, so, um, but let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians first. We're going to actually be looking at two passages, <clears throat> first in Galatians 5. In a moment, I'm going to read from verses 16 through 26. We're going to focus on verses 22 to 23. And then also, I'll, I'll read from Matthew 5, just verses 11 and 12. We're coming this morning, we're going to be focusing this morning on the fruit of the Spirit that is known as joy. The joy, joy as the fruit of the Spirit. And this is part of Paul's writing on, on this relationship between the spirit and the flesh those who are of the flesh have given in to to the sin in their life and they've they've quenched the spirit they're living on their own but in God's grace and mercy he has given to us the spirit Christ even said I'm sending to you my spirit as a counselor and as a as a helper the spirit is given to his people and the Spirit gives new life. And part of that new life is laid out for us in the verses that we're going to focus on this morning in the fruit of the Spirit. These nine fruit of the Spirit. And we're, just we're going to focus this morning just on one of them. Joy. Joy. Before we read, let me ask you one more time to come with me to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together as we come to his word, asking for his help. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word your word that is a lamp to our feet, that is a double-edged sword cutting to the quick. Father, we ask that your word would do a work on us this morning. Father, would your work not return to you void as it is read and now preached. Father, we ask that you would transform us, shape us, sanctify us by your word. As your spirit is at work in us by the word, there's no other way for you to do that work, for us to be transformed, to be sanctified in your word, a work by your spirit. And so, Father, we, we pray now that that would be true. We come to your word, do a work in us, build us up by your word, through the work of your spirit. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Reading first from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. This is God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, anger, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And if you would, flip over with me to Matthew 5, looking at just verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, says the Lord Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. We thank God for his word. May he write its truths on our hearts. Imagine with me, if you will, you've gone to the wedding of a very good friend. You're at the wedding for a good friend, and soon upon the beginning of the ceremony, the ceremony that should be so full of, of, of joy and happiness, soon upon the beginning of the ceremony, it becomes rather clear that the minister is in altogether the wrong mood. A wedding ceremony is an, is an occasion for for wonder, expectation, even giddiness, gladness. But the minister is only grim and gloomy. We would very likely wonder if there was something wrong with the minister. Or at the least, we would have to conclude he does not grasp the magnitude or the meaning of the marriage ceremony that he himself is there to conduct. This morning, we take up Christian joy. Christian joy. And joy is something really akin to the life of the Christian, to the whole life of the Christian. What a person knows is to be experienced in and around a wedding ceremony. There is something off about the person, about a wedding goer who is grim something off about that person. There's something off about a person claiming Christ who does not have joy. Having said that, though, we need to define joy. We need to define joy. We speak of joy perhaps sometimes flippantly. We don't know what we always mean by it. So let's define joy. When we define something, sometimes it's helpful to begin with what the thing is not. And so this morning... We can say that there are things that joy is not. The joy that we often find in the pages of Scripture is not, as one commentator will say, a transient emotion produced by the expectation or enjoyment of good. Joy is not a transient emotion. It's not a fleeting or passing feeling that waxes and wanes on the waves of unfolding circumstances. Instead, what we can say is that joy is a gospel-informed contentment. Joy is a gospel-informed contentment. Philip Ryken says that joy is not so much happiness as contentment. Joy is the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. One of my seminary professors says this, joy is not the absence of pain or suffering, 
but rather a contentment grounded in Christ and steadfast in the knowledge that one is firmly in the Savior's grasp. So that what we can say is that joy has more to do, it's related more to its object than its expression. Joy may produce in you feelings of happiness, cheerfulness, excited merriment. We don't deny these feelings, these emotions. To be, to be content in Christ may produce in you expectant giddiness. Maybe even that of a child on Christmas morning. Or the wonder of a child as she enters through the gates of Disney World, perhaps. Even David danced for joy as the ark was coming back into the city. But true Christian joy is not itself the giddiness or the wonder of the dancing. It goes broader and deeper than mere feelings and expressions. It's closer to what an orphan feels, experiences, we might say, after being transferred from one place to another over many years upon realizing that he has found a home, finally. Parents who care for him, who love him unconditionally. The feeling might not always show itself in a smile because joy runs deeper. And like the orphan come home, Christian joy has to do with a status change. It has to do with the one who changes our status. That is Christ. Christ as he changes our status from enemy to friend, from condemned to reconciled, from orphans to sons and daughters of God the Father. So that I, I must say this morning to you, Christian, uh, the, the Christian is a joyful person. The Christian is a joyful person. This morning, I want to focus on what it means for believers to have joy. To do this, we'll consider joy from two different angles, turning joy around and looking at it from two different angles, joy as reality and joy as requirement. The scriptures give us good reason for considering joy, both as a reality of the new walk, but also as a requirement for our calls to joy. And the relationship does matter. The relationship does matter. Joy's requirement, the requirement to joy, must flow from the reality. That's the relationship. The requirement of joy, for joy follows from, flows from the reality that we have joy. So this morning, we'll, we'll begin with the reality. First, joy is a reality of new life in the spirit. And then secondly, we'll look as, at joy as a requirement of new life in the spirit. So first, joy is a reality of new life in the spirit. What is it that the fall did to human nature? What is it that the fall did to human nature? We're told in Genesis 2 that sin will result in death. That death would mean two things. It, would, it means the eventual bodily death of all living things. All that lives will die because of Adam's sin. We see the evidence of this all around us and even inside of us. 
For the death also meant and means immediate spiritual death. Sin results in spiritual death. That is the stopping up of the source of spiritual life. Spiritual life that once enabled Adam and Eve in the garden to obey and to enjoy God. They were made for that. They were made to enjoy God and to to obey him. And they were enabled to do that very thing because they were full of spiritual life. They were spiritually alive. The fall cut off the source of spiritual life. I wonder if you know what happens to a river when the headwaters cease to flow. The river dries up. So also when the source of spiritual life flowing through the believer, through the person, when it's cut off, spiritual death results. The refreshing waters bringing rich nutrients cease to flow and our souls dry up. They died. That's what happened with the fall. We become spiritually dead. The message of Scripture is consistent for the New Testament. Spiritual death. This is is the state of every person who has ever been born for as long as as we remain in unbelief and separated from Christ. We are cut off from the source of life. And what does that living with a dried up soul look like? It looks like what Paul tells us in Galatians 5 and the verses preceding the fruit of the Spirit. Verses 19 through 21 outlines in quite dark and miserable language what it looks like to go through life completely cut off from spiritual life, from the life of the Spirit. Sexual immorality. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, Paul says. We turn in on ourselves. We become all about ourselves. We begin to use other people. We're always in competition. We nurse every grudge and ill feeling. That's the life lived apart from the spirit. That's the dead soul. The soul dead in sin still lives, but it lives a fleshly life for itself. It is trying to be life for itself. It wants life. It knows that it's made for life, and so it's seeking for life in all these different things but it can't find it. What Paul shows us in Galatians 5 is that another state or mode of living is available to us. The living life of the Spirit. Jesus says that it is the Spirit who gives life. Paul will tell us that the Spirit is life. The Spirit is a a life-giving Spirit. When God created the man in the garden, he breathed into his nostrils breath and he animated what had not been animated when the spirit comes into one who is spiritually dead he gives animating breath new life 
new life. The Spirit gives animating breath to those dead. When we come to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-23, we find there the fruit, the evidence, the marks of life in the Spirit. When you believe the gospel of Christ, when you have believed the gospel of Christ, already the Spirit had been given to you, was already given to you before you believed. I was just meeting with some of the men in our church yesterday morning, and we were speaking about regeneration. Regeneration always precedes faith. We believe, the call of the gospel is to believe the gospel. But for you to believe, if you have believed, already before that, preceding that, new life, spiritual life, regenerates you. Already the Spirit of Christ is animating you, believer, rushing through you and nourishing you with the refreshing waters of Christ's own resurrection life. You become new creation, and you bear new fruit. That's what Paul tells us in these verses. A few years ago, the Pearl River flooded large segments of Jackson, Mississippi. Perhaps you remember hearing about that. At the time, I was living in the Bellhaven neighborhood, and I was a student at RTS at the time. And so every day for class, I would make a drive down South 55, and I would turn west onto 20. And at that junction, going west on 55 onto 20, the Pearl River flows beneath a part of the highway there. And when that flooding occurred, it was one of the worst uh, parts of the flooding. Right, right there, the water came up almost all the way to the top of the bridge. And so every day as I was driving to class, I would see the, the devastation of, of that water, that flooded water. But I can remember distinctly as the water began to recede and went down, what had been previous to the flood, what had been just dry, brown ground around the banks, is now flooded with green life. Even flowers blossoming where there had been dust and brown was now green and life. Green life grew thick and rich. That's what the Spirit does for you. The Spirit makes to grow abundant new life, new life that shows in its fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, one fruit, the one fruit of the Spirit, which teaches us that each listed virtue here, we're only focusing on one, but all nine of these listed virtues, love, joy, peace, is a reality as part of the new life of the Spirit, and this includes the reality of joy. This means that it's not that some of you get a little bit of uh, love and a little bit of peace, some of you get some self-control, Every believer gets the fruit of the Spirit. These nine fruit, they're yours. They're given to you. The Spirit works them in you. That includes joy. That includes joy. It is new life joy that the Spirit works in you. It is gospel-informed contentment. It is the experience of a new status, that of no longer being an orphan, having a home, belonging to a home, of having a secure inheritance, Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
That is joy. And joy is a reality of new life in the Spirit. Such a joy is for you, believer. It is yours. It is not merely held out for you. It belongs to you. It's already been worked in you. It's being produced in you. It's, a part, it's, it's part of the reality of your new life. And here we find joy is indicative, the reality of it. The indicative deals in fact. It is terribly hot in Mississippi. That's a fact. It's a statement we all know too well. Another true statement is that the Christian has joy. The Christian is a joyful person. Joy is a reality of new life in the Spirit. But then we also find, as we find joy as reality, we also find joy as a requirement at times. We find joy listed or given with an imperative. So now we move from the indicative to the imperative. The, the indicative always comes first, and the, the imperative flows from the indicative. And now we move to the imperative. Joy's requirement flows from joy's reality. And so now joy is a requirement of new life in the Spirit. There are several passages that we could go to and look at to see the imperative of joy. Perhaps the best known one, the one that maybe comes to mind for you, is Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Paul says. But I want us to consider this morning Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 11-12. Jesus here, the teaching of Jesus here, comes at the end of the Beatitudes. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The campus minister at Ole Miss, years ago, I was working campus ministry, and I was up for, uh, I was hearing the campus minister at Ole Miss talk about the Beatitudes, and he described the Beatitudes, and really the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, uh, as, as giving us an upside-down life. Jesus talks about an upside-down life in the Beatitudes. Everything taught in the Beatitudes is upside-down, unexpected, opposite from what we would expect. And as Jesus comes to the end of the Beatitudes, as he's wrapping up the Beatitudes, he tells us about this, this upside-down life as it relates to, to suffering. And then he tells us to rejoice and be glad in suffering. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus has just talked about in verse 11. You will suffer. You will suffer. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus gives the imperative to his disciples to rejoice and be glad, and he gives us these two reasons, these two contexts for that joy, for that rejoicing. First, you are to rejoice in your suffering situation. You are to rejoice in your suffering situation. Suffering is the context for this command of Jesus to rejoice and be glad. Those who live the upside-down life will suffer. Jesus does not whitewash anything, does he? Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you. Now there are all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, he says. You ought to rejoice in your suffering situation. 
Those who live the upside down life will suffer. They will suffer persecutions and mockery. They will be called fools for their faith. They will face the loss of jobs, the rupturing of relationships. You might be canceled, quieted, all for the name of Christ. It is in this context that Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. And if we go back to that well-known verse in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always, Paul, right after that, talks about how he finds contentment in whatever situation, whether he's low or high. And so we can expand the suffering context of Jesus' words to include various earthly hardships, chronic sickness, life-altering injury, loss of income stability, breakdowns in family relationships. In each of these, the believer is commanded to rejoice and be glad, to be joyful. Here in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 12, because of the second imperative, be glad, rejoice, and be glad, we actually come the closest to, to connecting joy with the feeling it produces in us. We're not unfeeling creatures, and Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. The Greek for glad undeniably carries an added sense of a strong emotion, something we feel deep in our bones even. It may not always manifest itself for others to see, but it's very real emotion that at times the gospel works in us. A believer cannot fulfill this command to rejoice and be glad and always wear a sour attitude. Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Perhaps some of you here this morning need the reminder that there is a time to weep. Maybe there's something that you're avoiding that you need to weep over. Some of you this morning need the reminder that there is a time to laugh. Nevertheless, to be joyful does not mean we have to sugarcoat our suffering as something that it isn't. Rejoicing in suffering does not try to see the suffering as a good thing in and of itself. Suffering is always evil, always part of an evil, fallen world in which death, decay, and disease have its day. Taking all of this into consideration, how are we to find joy in our suffering? To answer that question, we take up the second reason or context that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5. So you're to rejoice in your suffering situation, but you're also to rejoice in your salvation status. In your salvation status. Jesus speaks of a great reward in heaven. The reward of heaven, of eternal life with Christ. Of never-ending life before the face of the Savior. That's the reward of a salvation status. That is having your status changed from one condemned to one forgiven, accepted, blameless in Christ. That is reason for joy. Your status has changed. Your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says. What this means for the suffering context is this. While suffering is not good in itself, to rejoice and be glad in our suffering is to look through it and see what lies waiting for us. The artist sees through the many painstaking hours of chiseling stone to the joy of a finished, beautiful statue. 
the woman in labor sees through the hours of painful childbirth to the joyous arrival of a new little life. The runner, I'm not a runner, but the runner apparently sees through the many miles of pavement to the joy of the finish line. The sailor sees through the storm to the joy of a restful shore. So the believer sees through the suffering, the sorrow, the insanity of life to the joy of the promised reward. Then we come to maybe a hard question that I think follows from it. How is a Christian able to do this? How is a Christian able to do this? On his, or, on his or her own, no person is able to have such a joy. Such joy is not possible for a person who has not believed the gospel. You can't create this in yourself. You can't rouse yourself to this. Instead, says Richard Sibbs, a, an old English Puritan, he says a Christian man is an able man. Whoever hath the spirit of Christ is an able man, and his ability is a large ability. This is why the requirement depends on the reality. The believer is enabled to have joy because he or she is not on their own. They are not left to their own strength or ability. Again, says uh, Sibs, the believer has a stronger and abler spirit than his own. That is the spirit of God. As the spirit makes his home in a person, he animates and enlivens them in them a a new, larger ability. It is an ability to be content in all circumstances, to see through the circumstances, to the awaiting glory, the fulfillment of promise. It is a large ability. The Spirit opens our eyes, expands our sight to see the far-off riches. and a large ability to have joy and be glad. This does not mean that you, believer, must muster up insincere happiness. For a variety of reasons related to both nature and nurture, some people just exude more outward cheerfulness and merriment. We all know those people. Some of you are those people. Some of you are not. I'm not necessarily one of those people who, by nature, is just a giddy person. You can ask my wife. The definition of joy matters for this reason. True joy is not dependent on our nature or nurture. It goes broader and deeper than mere feelings or outward expressions. Every believer, every person redeemed, restored, forgiven is a joyful person. The Christian is a joyful person. You are to have joy in your obedience. You are to have joy through your suffering. You are to have joy on good days and bad because joy is your reality. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy deep-rooted. Bounding and flourishing along the hills and down the valley of your heart. A Christian is a joyful person. As we consider what great things God has done for us in Christ, let us be those who rejoice and are glad. Let us be those who live with holy contentment, gospel-informed contentment because of the reward awaiting us. Let us be those who see through the storm to the joy of the coming restful shore. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit.
We thank you that you have told us in your word that for your people, there is new life. There's a new life principle, including even joy. Father, would you make us to be joyful people? Would that joy at times even show? But nevertheless, Father, would you make us to be joyful people? Remind us of all that we have in Christ. Set before us the hope of the gospel, the hope of the promise of life, eternal life. Might we be able to even see through suffering to that promise. Would you help us, Father? We need your help. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.